Well, I invite and encourage all of you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention, and they'll get you one of those. It's marked for you at Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Last week in our series in Ecclesiastes, the title of which is How to Find Meaning in a Meaningless World, but it's not official until it gets on the screen. That is the title of the series. Last week in our series in Ecclesiastes, I said that we're too often influenced by the way things appear rather than the way they really are. That is, in the phrase that's used over and over in this book, we look at life from the limited perspective of, quote, under the sun. And that distorts reality for us. We don't see our lives from God's standpoint, and so we become discontented with what we think is going on. So in the final verse that we looked at last Sunday, in chapter 6 and verse 9, it says this. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. It's saying to be content with what you have rather than getting depressed about what you don't have due to the roving desires that create discontent. If you're going to do that, though, if you're going to be content with what you have, then you need to do three things. And I've listed those three things in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out so that you can follow along. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word. Father, you've gathered us. You've quieted us. We have your word in front of us. We ask you now, Lord, to do your work in our hearts, so that when we leave this place, we will be different than we came, that we will be changed further into the image of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus, which is the reason for which you made us in your image and are remaking us in his image. So to that end, we ask you to do your work in us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you're going to do this, if you're going to be content with what you have, you need to do these three things, the first of which is this. Know your limitations. Know your limitations. Verse 10 says, Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Those verses, in somewhat enigmatic fashion, are telling us that we do not have the power to control things. We don't have the power to control things due to our limitations. Now, it's popular to say, especially during high school and college graduations, you can do anything that you set your mind to. Sorry to burst your bubble, but no, you can't. You are limited by your nature. 
You cannot do, and no one can do, what is contrary to their nature. Birds can fly because that's their nature. And you're thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute. You know, I flew to San Diego a few years ago. But even when you're in the air in a plane, you're not flying, the airplane is. And even God is limited by his nature, and that's a good thing. So, for instance, God cannot lie, cannot lie, not just does not, cannot lie because it's contrary to who he is. And we're not only limited by our nature, we're limited by our position. We're not in charge of any of the events or many of the events, I should say, that happen in our lives. But there is someone who is. Someone who is in control of all things and he's greater than us. And he doesn't consult with us because he doesn't need, frankly, our advice. Verse 10 says, no one can contend with someone who is stronger. And in this context, that someone is God. And yet still, sometimes people do try to argue with God. So verse 10 says, the more the words, the less the meaning. And those who deign to do that usually come to regret it. Take Job, for example. In that story of Job in the book of the Bible that goes by that name, many of you know that famous story and the calamity that befell Job. And then at the end of that book, God finally speaks to to Job. Job has been asking for a hearing. He's been challenging God, as it were, to answer him. And God answers him out of the whirlwind. And after all of that, at the end of the book of Job, in the final chapter, Job had to confess, I spoke of things I did not understand. And therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You see, friends, we need to know our limits. And one of our limits is that we do not have the wisdom to out-talk God. No matter what we say, telling God what he ought to do and not do, it will never change his wise plan for ruling his universe. In the words of scholar Derek Kidner, whatever brave words we may multiply about man or against his maker, these verses remind us that we shall not alter the way in which we and our world were made. In fact, the more we talk, the emptier our words will sound. And so to help keep us in our place, the Bible asks, Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? C.S. Lewis said to argue with God is to argue with the very power that makes it possible to argue at all. Now, most often we don't verbalize what it is that we're saying in our hearts about ourselves and about God. But even though we don't verbalize it, of course, God hears our hearts as we accuse and question and doubt him. And that's why sometimes when I'm counseling, I challenge the counselee to say aloud what they are clearly saying in their hearts by their actions and their attitudes so that they can hear what God already knows is going on in those hearts. So say out loud to God, my happiness is more important than your holiness. Go ahead, give that a try. 
You're saying it in your heart. Go ahead and say out loud, verbalize, you don't know what you're doing. Because that's what we're doing in our hearts. Go ahead and say out loud, you don't really love me. Or, just go ahead and say, and I hesitate to say this, but I'm just saying it for purposes of illustration because this is what we are saying in our hearts many times. God, you're a liar. I know you said in your word that you will never leave me nor forsake me. I know you said in your word that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I know you said that. But you're a liar. Hmm. If you're going to be content with the life that God has given, you, we, I, must know our limitations. Secondly, in your outline. We must consider our choices. In the next 12 verses that begin chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes, there are a series of proverbs that tell us how to live within the assigned circumstances our sovereign God has given. We can't overrule God. That point has been made at the end of chapter 6. We can't overrule God, but we can choose to live under God's rule by doing what He says is best. And so these verses use the word better eight times in a series of contrasts. As one preacher has put it, Solomon says this, X is better than Y, so choose X. These Proverbs fall into five categories that provide us with five principles. Now, before we look at those five principles, remember the context. God has just told us at the end of chapter 6 that we cannot make sense of all that goes on. But though life under the sun appears to be meaningless, we should not reach the conclusion that there are no answers. Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, believed that choices, our choices, are important. Otherwise, he could not have challenged us, as we're going to see, to make the better choice. We must live, then, within wisdom. That is, we must consider the choices we make. The New Testament speaks of this as renewing of the mind, which is a way of saying to learn to think scripturally so that we consider, think about the best choices. We need to learn to approach life with a Bible-soaked kind of logic. So here are the five principles found in chapter 7, which are also spoken of elsewhere in Scripture. The first is this in your outline. Character is better than pleasure. Chapter 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. And when it speaks of a good name in verse 1, It's referring to a good reputation that's based on good character. And perfume refers to the luxuries of life that bring happiness, but that are also fleeting and empty, vain. Instead of setting your sights on pleasure, set your sights 
on character, on integrity, on honesty. The Bible says this elsewhere in Proverbs 22. A good name is more desirable than riches. And that's because a good reputation lasts a lifetime, but pleasure endures for the moment. And then verse 1 says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. One has said we celebrate birthdays and we mourn death days. And that's natural. We rejoice at the birth of a child. And in the midst of this joy, though, we do not know whether one day that bundle of love will bring us joy or pain, blessing or sorrow. We do not know if that baby will grow up to establish character or bring shame. How much better is the joy that comes after a life that has been lived in which a name has been established, a name of character and integrity that impacts others? The life you live between birth and death will determine whether your name will leave behind a lovely fragrance or a foul stench. Character is better than pleasure. Second, reflection is better than amusement. Reflection better than amusement. Verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Now, Solomon is the same one who wrote in Proverbs that a cheerful heart is good medicine. So it's not saying that laughter is bad. In fact, laughter is is very good. But someone whose life is dominated by amusement, that is, amuse means literally don't think. Amusement, just not thinking about it, just going through life, drifting through life and laughing all the way through. That's what he's saying. Cannot compare to the sober mind that focuses on the realities of life and death. Verse 1 says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. And then these three verses tell us why. Because death has more to teach us about life than life itself does. Matthew Henry said it will do us more good to go to a funeral than to a festival. Now why is that? Because a funeral focuses the mind on things that we try to repress, but which, if really considered, will shape how we live. You see, friends, we don't generally have to force ourselves to pursue laughter and a good time. That comes naturally for most of us. But we try to suppress, sometimes with that very laughter, the realities that should shape our priorities in life. There are 150 psalms in the book by that name. And exactly one of those psalms, Psalm 90, was written by Moses. And at the end of his life, Moses writes this psalm of 17 verses. And he's considering all that he has seen. And he's passing on that wisdom. And he had seen plenty. He had seen people die. Lots of people die. In the first part of that psalm, he says, we're going to return to dust. That's what you do, God. You return us to dust. But then he says, you know, this is a good thing for us to know and remember that our lives are brief and momentary. And in the middle, the key verse of that psalm, he says this famously, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
teach us to think about the fact that we have few days. And so, therefore, to make the most of them. When verse 2 speaks of going to a house of mourning, it's referring to the practice of going to a home where someone has died and where the dead person is. You see, in those days, it was customary to pay last respects in people's homes. Jesus did this when Lazarus died. He went to comfort Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary. Today, we normally say our last farewells in a church building or at a funeral home. So we need to intentionally remind ourselves of the reality and the impact of death. Now, I have seen this when I was a kid down south. My family's from the south, most of you know. And one of my cousins tragically died at the age of 19 in a car accident. We went down for that funeral. And they had the body laid out in the living room of my grandmother. That also happened to be where we were staying while we were there. But it focuses, it focuses the mind on the sober fact that we will all die. But instead of focusing on that, we try to just not think about it. Our culture does as much as it can to deny the reality of our mortality. It's increasingly rare for people to encounter dead bodies or watch coffins get lowered into the ground or even to mention the word death. Instead, we say the departed. Someone passed away or is not with us anymore or went to a better place. Anything except what they actually did, what, which was to die. It's better for us to deal with that directly, to know that this is the way of all flesh and to take that to heart. According to Martin Luther, it is good for us to, quote, invite death into our presence when it is still at a distance. And not on the march. So think about it now. And think about how that should shape your life now. Character is better than pleasure. Reflection. Better than amusement. Third. Learning is better than frivolity. Learning better than frivolity. Verse 5. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. The point of these two verses, simply stated, is that the rebuke of wisdom is better than the laughter of foolishness. One of the best ways to learn how to live well in this fallen world is to receive correction from people who are wiser than we are. Now, a rebuke is hard to hear. But a song is pleasant to the ear. But even though the tune may be pleasant, the content of the song is foolish. But we'd rather listen to that than wise correction that's difficult to receive. Just bear that in mind as you listen to the songs of fools that are recorded for the radio, for your... Uh, mp3 player and you go you know I just don't listen to the lyrics well do that sometime and then compare the foolishness of what is said there to the wisdom given in God's word 
The laughter, the frivolity of fools is like this verse. These verses say the crackling of branches from a thorn bush and a fire. Now, how are those two things alike? Well, they're alike in a number of ways. One, the branches flame up quickly and a fool is quick to laugh at anything. Further, both the fire and the laughter do not last very long. You see, he who laughs the loudest will not necessarily laugh the longest. Jesus said this, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Again, Jesus is not against laughter. He's against a life of frivolity that doesn't focus on the important issues. He was talking about future reward in that passage. Future reward and loss and the loss that those who take a frivolous approach to life will experience at the final judgment. Some people simply laugh their lives away. Some of you have a hard time not giggling while you're in here. If that's the case with you, think very carefully about where your mind is. Because you see, friends, there's nothing funny about death. There's nothing funny about the hell that comes after death for anyone who dies without Christ. And this is why it's much better for us to hear the rebuke of the wise. In the words of one commentator, someone who cares enough to confront us will tell us to get serious about life and death. Listening to the constructive criticism of a godly friend can save your soul. And wise people will say all the things that the book of Ecclesiastes has been saying. Those people will tell us that living for pleasure and working for selfish gain are striving after the wind. They will tell us that God has a time for everything, including a time to be born and a time to die. They will tell us, as Ecclesiastes has, that two are better than one when facing the difficulties of life. They will tell us that because God is in heaven and we are on earth, we should be careful with what we say. They will tell us that money will never satisfy our souls. In short, they will tell us not to live for today, but to live for eternity. And then verse 7 says, Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. That is, those who are preoccupied with the pursuit of merriment are soon drawn in by evil because they've not established character and integrity. And so I ask you, do you have wise people in your life Hear this, wise people in your life who love you enough to risk losing your friendship. Who love you enough to risk telling you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Do you have people like that in your life? If not, you should. And there are people in this room that could become those friends to you. Character is better than pleasure. Reflection better than amusement. Learning better than frivolity. Fourth, endurance is better than arrogance. Endurance better than arrogance. Verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. 
The end is better than the beginning because at the end, something's actually been accomplished. It's easy to start. It's hard to finish. To fulfill your responsibility requires patience when it's not going well or even looks like it may not get where we envision. This is why at the building of the temple in the Old Testament, after coming back from exile, God had to remind his people through the prophet Zechariah, who dares despise the day of small things? That is, things are just getting started. Be patient. But those who demand instant gratification are often angry people because things don't always happen when and how we want. And that's why verse 9 says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Yikes. If you're an angry person, God just labeled you. Because what's behind the anger is a lack of patience that says it must be done now and it must be done the way I want. Endurance, patience, is better than the arrogance that says it should happen as I want, when I want. And that arrogance then leads to the complaint of verse 10. Do not say, Why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. You've heard that, the good old days, right? Someone has said the good old days are the product of a bad memory and a good imagination. And it was the Roman poet Horace who said in Latin, carpe diem, seize the day, this day. The Bible says it this way, redeem the time for the days are evil. So one author has said, while you are dreaming of the future or you're regretting the past, the present, which is all you have, slips from you and is gone. So character is better than pleasure, reflection better than amusement, learning better than frivolity, endurance better than arrogance, fifthly, discernment is better than folly, discernment, better than foolishness. Verse 11 says, Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. This is saying that wisdom or discernment keeps its value for your entire life. And it will preserve your life if you apply its lessons. Learn from wise people rather than from experience, and you won't have to undergo unnecessary pain. So if you're going to be content with the life that God has given, you must know your limitations, consider your choices, and then lastly, surrender your will. Verse 13 says, consider what God has done. Who can straighten What he has made crooked. That is, resign yourself to the fact that God's plan cannot be changed. But don't simply resign yourself, but rest in the fact that all that happens is from the hand of God, even the difficult things. 
Verse 14 says, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said, We want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed by such lines, but since it's abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. The problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble as long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love and we look on things as if man were the center of them. Man is not the center. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. So with all of this in conclusion, instead of knowing our limitations, this is what we often do. We play God. Instead of considering the better choice, we ignore God. Instead of surrendering our will, we defy God. Now, why do we do that? Well, behind every sin and negative emotion is a lie. Author Tim Chester says, Often we can identify specific lies behind specific sinful acts and emotions. I may envy, steal, or be anxious about money because I believe the lie that consumer goods give meaning to my life or I believe that God doesn't care about me. I may commit adultery or get depressed about my singleness because I believe that intimacy with another person will give me more than God can give. Not many of us think of ourselves as people who believe lies. But every time we don't trust God's word, we're believing something else, and that something else is always a lie. If I get angry when I'm stuck in traffic, it's because I don't trust God. I believe the lie that God isn't in control or that his purpose, purpose for me is not good. If I overwork, it's because I don't trust God, perhaps because I believe the lie that I need to prove or justify myself. Many of our negative emotions are sinful because they're symptoms of unbelief, which is really the root sin of all behavioral and emotional sins. I may be depressed because in my fallen body a chemical imbalance has developed. But I may well be depressed because I believe God isn't good to me or that he's not in control. So ask yourself, what lies are you believing when you're not content to live as finite, a limited creature in the hand of the Creator. These lies are about God and they're about ourselves. We may believe God does not know what he's doing or that we know better. But the psalmist tells us how we need to think about God and ourselves in relation to God. In Psalm 62, verses 11 and 12, it says, Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. The key truths that God declares about himself in that passage and that we'll begin to study in today's lesson, next hour in Master Plan for Life, they are his greatness, first of all. It speaks of power belongs to God and his goodness, secondly. With you, Lord, is unfailing love. So this is telling us that God is great and God is good. 
First of all, it tells us that God is great. God's greatness helps us to do the first two things that are in the outline today. If we're going to know our limitations, we must remember that God is great, and so I don't have to be in control. And as we secondly consider our choices, remember that God is great, which means I can rest in the right choice. I can make the right choice. I can do what God says is better. And then I know that he'll work it out for good because he indeed is in control, so I can rest in that. And as you surrender your will to God, you can do that with confidence that he's not only great, but good. And will give you all you need and satisfy your desires. So remember that God is good and therefore I don't have to look elsewhere. With all of that, your take-home truth is the godly live and die well. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for granting us this time to look into the pages of your word and see there Yet again, the realism that you give us about what life is really like. Lord, our tendency is to look at our circumstances, look at those around us, and to assume that things that are apparent are true. But what's apparent is not what is always real. And you are the one who knows everything that is happening and all of its connections And you can show us not just what is apparent, but what is true, what is reality. And we see that in your word. You've given us then these truths, that we need to know our limitations, that we need to consider our choices very carefully. And you tell us what the better choices are. And that in all this, we surrender our will to you. And if we'll do that, we can trust you, our great and good God to work out all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. So help us, Lord, to be not just good people, but godly people. And claim the truth that you teach us in your word, that the godly indeed live and die well. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.